did a little study of American presidents, which I enjoy looking at sometimes, and all of them have nicknames. Some I can't repeat from the pulpit. They're the funniest ones. Many are derogatory, but all of them, with two exceptions I found, and I won't uh, say which political party they represent, all of them have complimentary names except for the two that don't. The complimentary nicknames are meant to characterize their leadership, their, their character or their style of governance. John Adams, he said that he vowed to sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish with his country. And so he was called old sink or swim for his loyalty. Thomas Jefferson was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and he was nicknamed the Apostle of Democracy. Andrew Jackson, a former military officer who was said by his men to be the toughest man they'd ever met, tough as a piece of wood, so they called him Old Hickory. Abraham Lincoln was revered by his White House staff members as the wisest man they ever knew, and so they affectionately called him the Ancient One. And because of his character, they called him Honest Abe within the White House. And Ronald Reagan was dubbed the Great Communicator because of his ability to communicate and hold the attention of, his, of an audience. These are great nicknames for great leaders. And, but it's interesting to me that the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week, are given titles or nicknames which, well, they're not so auspicious. They're not so great. We saw last time they're called overseers, which basically means security guard. And that's it. There's a connotation of visiting, of having a relationship with the church. So that's nice, but it's not great. They're called shepherds or pastors. In ancient Egypt, shepherds were the bottom rung of the social ladder. They were stinky for being around livestock all the time. So that's not much of a compliment. And the primary word we use, church leaders are called elders which is Greek for old guy. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing elegant. There's nothing upper crust about being a a spiritual leader in the church. God didn't design the leaders of the church to be the royalty of God's people. Rather, we're to be the servants of Christ for the sake of God's people. And I think that perspective really helps us to know what God is looking for in the spiritual leaders of Christ's church and Uh, we could find our first text here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, once again. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, as we continue looking at the church's shepherds. And again, as I mentioned last couple of weeks, for a number of messages, we're going to use verse 1 as our home base to give us a broad foundation to really understand the ministry of the shepherds. And we recall that understanding the ministry of the shepherds then gives all of us insight into the whole church, how we're to function as a church, and it makes for a healthier and more obedient, vibrant church. And we said that we'll spend a number of weeks in verse 1, and then verses 2 through 7, the qualifications of an elder, of an overseer, of a pastor or shepherd, they'll make sense and they'll really fall into place very easily for us. So 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The word I want to focus on this morning is the word desires. Something he desires. It's a word which indicates a longing, a yearning. And in fact, it's such a strong word that sometimes in the New Testament, it's translated to lust after something, to covet something for yourself. 
And so if in the positive sense of this yearning and this longing, there is a, a desire to lead the people of God in the church, what is that proper desire? What precisely is the heart that God is seeking in the shepherds of the church? Now, before we really get going, what I want to do is just show you what that heart is not to be. And then we'll spend most of our time on what the heart of the shepherd is. And in fact, the Bible gives us some more nicknames for shepherds to help us understand their hearts. But just for a moment, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And in 1 Peter 5, I want to show you what the heart of a shepherd is not to be. In 1 Peter 5, in his usual fashion, Peter pulls no punches. He was never accused of being subtle. He wasn't artistic. He wasn't nuanced. He wasn't refined. He just says it the way it is. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And now he gives three wrong desires, three wrong motives for becoming a shepherd. Verse 2, the first one, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And so uh, being compelled, being talked into it, having your arm twisted to be a leader in the church, that's a wrong motive, a wrong desire. This is the man pressured by others to be a leader in the church. Well, you're successful in business or you have time on your hands or you have gray hair or anything. Well, you should be an elder. I had the privilege of sitting in with a question and answer time with John MacArthur a number of years ago when I went through the Grace Advance Academy. And he said that every lay elder that he had ever talked into being an elder didn't work out. That every time he tried to twist somebody's arm into being an elder, it didn't work. And so he stopped trying to talk men into it. Rather, the leader is clearly prompted by God through desire, through gifting, through maturity. And so not under compulsion. The second wrong desire, verse 2, not for shameful gain. Not to gain wealth or power or prestige. Now, I don't know a lot of men who went into the gospel ministry to get wealthy. That's not usually what you do to get wealthy, but it can come upon them at times. There can be that temptation. More likely, though, this is the man who wants to be an elder because he likes to control. He likes to be in charge. He likes to make decisions. He likes the title. He likes the recognition. I've lost track of how many pastors have said that we put a guy who used to work hard into the office of elder and as soon as he had the title, he didn't do anything because he liked the title. And so not for shameful gain. And then the third reason not to desire, verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It is not to domineer. It's not to abuse your spiritual authority such as Diotrephes did in Third John Third John 9 says he likes to put himself first and he was singularly kicking people out of the church because those people, heaven forbid, wanted to welcome solid Bible teachers into the church. But he wanted to be the focus of attention. And by the way, Diotrephes was also a reviler. He, quote, was talking wicked nonsense against us. As John said, someone who gains power by denigrating other leaders behind their back. And so a man who's reluctant or a man with a sinful lust for shameful gain or power or recognition or dominance, the church should be warned not to approve a man like that. So what is the heart of a shepherd? 
I'd like to spend the rest of our time with a couple of exceptions in 1 Thessalonians 2. If you would turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians 2. And this is especially appropriate for us today as today is Father's Day. Because we're going to see the Apostle Paul give three nicknames to leaders in the church. Nicknames which really describe beautifully the true and pure heart of one called to lead the people of God. Here are the nicknames. I'll just give them to you up front. The nicknames are the heart of a mother, the heart of a brother, and the heart of a father. The heart of a mother, the heart of a brother, and the heart of a father. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning of verse 1, Paul gives a, a light defense of his ministry. Paul and Silas had come to Thessalonica right after having been beaten severely in Philippi and, and with their bruises and their, their battered bodies. They walked the hundred miles from Philippi to Thessalonica in this shape. But they had been entrusted with the gospel and they came to Thessalonica not to entertain men, not to please men, but to please and obey God. And they said that they didn't make demands on the brand new baby church, even though they had the right to do so as Paul did as an apostle and as ministers of the gospel. And now in verses 7 through 12, it's really a continuation of Paul's defense of his ministry, his assertions about what they were doing. How did he come to minister to those in Thessalonica? Well, first he came with the heart of a mother. He came with the heart of a mother. 1 Thessalonians 2, look with me at verses 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What does this heart of a mother look like? Well, we could assign some labels to the heart of a mother. First of all, there's gentleness. Verse 7, gentleness is seen like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I don't know if there's a more tender metaphor that he could use. Women in general are naturally gifted at caring for children. They're built-in nurturers and caregivers. Even more gifted in caring for children are women who are mothers themselves. But the most devoted and enthusiastic and zealous caregiver of all is a woman who's a mother caring for her own children. There's nothing like it. Us as men, we, we try to understand this, but we have to earn our relationship with every child that comes into this world and our families But you ladies, you mothers, you carry that little one from the very beginning. And so like a nursing mother, Paul patiently and carefully fed them God's word, nurturing them all the way. So there's gentleness. There's also affection. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Thus, Or in this manner, so being affectionately desirous of you. They longed for the church. There was was an affection that was real. It was true. It was palpable. This is very interesting. This is the only time in the whole New Testament that this particular word for longing, for affectionately desirous, as it's translated in ESV, it's the only time it's used. It's the most emotional term of endearment that Paul ever uses in any of his letters. It's a term that's taken basically from the nursery. It's a spiritual nursery in that as soon as each baby is brought in, there's this this care, this brand new believer that Paul just wants to, to just hold on to them. But there's a danger in this nursery 
Because in the spiritual nursery of the church, enemies are attacking and challenging that little new one's right to live. It's like caring for newborns in a war zone. Now, it's interesting to me that almost every other time that Paul speaks of affectionate longing, it's because he's away from someone. But he said that he was affectionately longing for them while he was there, while he was with them. He says, while we were with you, there was great longing and affection. And we can understand this. This is like with a baby. Babies just have this magnetic attraction. They can be this close to you and you just have to kind of gobble them up, don't you? You just want to irritate them. And it'd be weird to do that with like a 12-year-old. You're not going to do that. But with a baby, you, you want to. You can be in the same room with a baby playing on the floor and you just have to go pick him up. One of my favorite things about being a pastor is that after church, a lot of your children come and just surround me. And I love that. Sometimes I even get injured if enough of them come and tackle. But there's this just longing. You have to be together. And Paul ventures out to say, I have the love of a mother. So there's gentleness. There's the affection of a mother. And we could also say there's the devotion of a mother. He says in verse 8, we were ready to share not only the gospel, but our own selves. Why? Again, because you become very dear to us. He says we were ready. This is a term that means we took delight in. The apostles didn't come to get something. They came to give something. The gospel of God, this priceless treasure that would enrich the Thessalonians for all of eternity. This is an expression of genuine love, of sharing this gift and how exciting it was, how devoted they were to this. We were ready to share our own selves, literally our own souls. We put everything we had into the ministry. We put all our efforts to lead you in the way of Christ. We poured ourselves out for this. This wasn't a job. We didn't clock in at nine o'clock and say we're done at five. We poured ourselves into this. And why? Because you became so very dear to us. And keep this in mind, Paul and Silas were probably in Thessalonica for 12 weeks before they were run out of town. And yet with those brand new believers, there was this instant affection that he just says like a mother. They had received Christ. Now they could be called their brothers and sisters. And I think a good lesson from this is to remind all the shepherds among us and those who aspire to be a shepherd that shepherding the flock of God is not a job. It is a calling. It is not a career option. You don't say, I was thinking about being a fireman, but I thought I'd be a pastor instead. It's not like that. To love the family of God in a local church, including the the risk inherent in, in calling people to holiness and challenging them to know and to live the word of God, there's risk there. You can't be too thick-skinned or you won't be sensitive to people. And you can't be too thin-skinned or you won't confront hard issues or be able to take the inevitable criticism. You have to be somewhere in between. To shepherd the flock of God is to be driven by this desire to see God honored, to see God glorified in the lives of his people. And, and I can attest to this. I can attest to the fact that the greatest joy I have, other than presenting the word of God to you, is the testimony you give when you say to me, I've been listening to the word of God and my life has changed. I live for that. I pray for that. I, I ask that from the Lord to shepherd in the church is not to be a professional, personal chaplain that comes to bless your new house or pronounce a curse on your business rivals. That's not what we're for. We're not the guy who shows up to pray over all the meals 
or to fit the ridiculous stereotypes that Hollywood and unbelievers put forward. I've never seen a movie in which the pastor isn't an idiot. That's not what we're here for. And we're certainly not men who are so weak and fearful that we hide in our study. The shepherd, the flock of God, is to be a risk taker. There's no job security. There's no retirement. It is to be foolish for Christ in the eyes of the world. It is to be an alien of aliens in a foreign land. It is to be the first to experience persecution from outside the church and inside the church. Our brother Tim Stevens, why is he in jail? Because he preached the gospel in a group of people. They didn't go to jail, he did. And he was devoted to that. It's to put yourself out there. It's to dive into ministry with everything you have. It's to weep over the sin of people and rejoice in the grace of God. It is to weep over your own sin and ask for the grace to be a better shepherd all the time. It's to be indignant when a professing believer is stubborn and mulish in their walk with Christ. And it is to love him by telling the truth no matter the consequences is to rejoice at the obedience of those who steadfastly follow the Lord and yet to call them to still more, to love still more, to obey still more. It is to work for the Lord and not for men. It is to preach and shepherd for your benefit, but to the glory of God. It is to defend the purity of Christ's church. It is so many things. It is not a job. It is a calling. And what was the Apostle Paul's pattern? He plunged in. He loved a congregation He often got his socks burned off by the very ones he loved. He reaches out and he continues loving them with persistent patience and constant affection. This is the devotion of a mother. And like a mother, Paul was gentle. He had true affection and he demonstrated devotion. There's a second nickname. He had the heart of a brother. He had the heart of a brother as a brother to them. He functioned like an older brother who knows what is what when the babies of the family don't know anything and don't yet have anything to contribute to the cause of the family except dirty diapers and difficulty. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. They worked sacrificially. It's a phrase, labor and toil. It rhymes in Greek. It's a poetic way of saying our toiling and our boiling. And he says, we worked night and day. This little church had so much to learn and Paul wasn't about to make the first priority taking a collection to support himself. That would have made him just look like the typical traveling professional speaker who just comes to take a collection. In fact, the the idea that he was proclaiming the message of the gospel and not receiving a nickel from them was proof of his passion, proof of his genuineness. Now, obviously, this isn't a proof text that pastors shouldn't be paid. It's proof that Paul knew the situation in his own church, that the church was only weeks old. And he didn't make his own support the priority. That would come later. He had the heart of a brother, and he showed himself as an example. And listen, Lazy shepherds, lazy older brothers lead to immature sheep. God is always faithful to raise up men of God, but I think overall, in my estimation, in my 25 years in the ministry, I think the standard for pastors and elders and even deacons has gone way down culturally. Gone way down. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, If anyone desires to be an elder, he desires a noble task. It's a work. It's a labor. It's an exertion. 
It's a task that's never finished. There's always more to do. There's always more to pray for. Always shepherding to do. The study of the word of God is never done. One of my favorite moments in seminary was uh, are, are the Q&As that we got to have with Dr. MacArthur because I think he used that time to blow off steam because he's very, very funny in person. And one student in the chapel, the Q&A chapel, a student from Britain, he stood up and asked a 30-second question in about four minutes was kind of how that worked out. And the question went something like this, Dr. MacArthur, in your years of study... As you examine the word of God in both Hebrew and Greek and sometimes Aramaic. And as you look to the text and look to heaven to understand the word of God. And as you craft your messages which have blessed so many thousands and millions of people. As you look and you, you write down the very words of God. And you, you craft and, and hone and form and, and sculpt this glorious message that you're going to give to your people how do you know when the sermon is finished and he sat down and dr macarthur said it's sunday <laughs> i'm out of time it's never done it's never done i usually start some of the messages i'm going to preach at our steadfast bible conference two months in advance and it's torture because i'm never finished the ministry's never done. There's always somebody hurting. There's always somebody in pain. There's always somebody in need. There's always somebody who needs to come to Christ. There are always people to pray for. There are always the lost that are out there. They never seem to stop rejecting God. There are always those of you who hurt. There are always those of you who need counsel, who need help, who need the Lord to minister to you in a new and fresh way. There are those of you who need to know what the Bible is about. It's never finished. And so it has to be a calling. There's no clocking out. There's no saying, well, my work here is done. The only way your work here is done is when God takes you out. That's it. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. I think this is a verse that all shepherds would do well to remember that shepherding is not purely an academic exercise. Many shepherds have had to admit to themselves that they love the word of God, but at times need a little help loving the people of God. Now, the emphasis here isn't just living a godly life in general, but specifically on how the flock of God is to be treated In fact, this phrase here, toward you believers, this has the emphasis on process. We became holy and righteous and blameless in our conduct to you who were believing. In other words, as you got to know us, as you saw our love for the Lord, and yes, our humanity, we earned the right to speak into your lives. From a human standpoint, he's saying we lived out the gospel in front of you. You saw the difference in our lives and therefore we earned the right as your older brothers to be followed. I don't think we need to make a big distinction here in verse 10 between holy and righteous and blameless. It's just generally living out our faith in a way that's a totally new experience for the Thessalonians. And what did this do? Well, it gave Paul a platform from which to speak. The, the life of the shepherd becomes now the stage from which he stands to proclaim to you that your life ought to be the stage on which you stand to proclaim the gospel. A lovely thought for an older brother. If the heart of a mother says, I'm a gentle and affectionate and devoted caregiver, then the heart of the brother says, 
I am in this Christian life with you. We're walking together. I think we should always be careful that there's never a sense in which there's this massive separation between the shepherds and the sheep. That we can't relate to one another. That can't be the case. There should be a sense in which we could take any new believer and simply say, go hang out with one of our shepherds and his family for a few weeks and you'll see how to be a Christian. How simple is that? That's discipleship. Well, Paul gives himself one more nickname, the heart of a mother, the heart of a brother, and now the heart of a father. The heart of a father. Verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, and we'll stop right there for a moment, like a father with his children. This is continuing the family metaphor. Paul tells us that he is like a father. What does a father do? A, a father gives instruction and sets boundaries. A dad tells it like it is. In Paul's culture, even the father was responsible for the moral instruction and the socializing of children in the way of life of their culture. Being a follower of Christ now means being re-socialized to the distinctive values of being a Christian, of what it means to walk in the manner worthy of the calling. And so what did Paul do as a spiritual father? Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in the manner worthy of God. We exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you. These three main verbs here describe Paul's father-like shepherding actions. To exhort them, it means to urge, to implore, to almost to beg. To encourage means to cheer somebody on and to say this is the very best thing you can do. You can do this. It's the best. And to charge them. This is to insist. This is the command. This is the demand. Now, this is basically three ways to say the same thing. And I think it would go something like this from a father to his child. Son, you have not been doing your best work in fulfilling your household duties. I am strongly urging you to stop being lazy and do your work at a higher level. That's exhortation. I know you can do it. I believe in you. And that with God's help, you can take your chores more seriously and do a better job. This is the best thing you can do. That's encouragement. Let me put it this way, son. You are going to do a better job. You are going to take me seriously. I am going to dog you until you do. That's the charge. That's the command. This has a different tone than the heart of a mother, a different tone than the heart of a brother, doesn't it? But this is the tone which is most lost in the church today. It's the tone which is most offensive to professing believers who like the mother and the brother part, but are rebellious against the father part. I think we could take a very good cue from James 1.22. You don't have to turn there. You know this verse. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is James giving a fatherly command, a charge to obey the word of God. And as a shepherd, he commands the sheep to do two things, to hear the word and do the word. And I'd like to camp on this just for a moment because it really fits the heart of a father. He commands them to hear the word. Two times here in our text in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12, Paul explains their work as proclaiming the gospel of God, which also includes exhortation, the urging, the appealing, the pleading, specifically with scripture, the taught word of God. There's a combination of motherly gentleness, fatherly directness, the gentleness and obvious love for the church opens the door to direct exhortation. Then there's the encouragement 
Again, that's to comfort, to advise, to support. That is the applied word of God. Exhortation, here's what it says. Encouragement, here's how you ought to do it. Let me put it another way. The sheep are to listen to the word of God preached and listen to the encouragement and stimulus to obey the word of God. And and listen, God has set up this amazing system. It is truly an amazing system that a few men will spend their lives and daily efforts in the study of God's word and what, what takes the preacher decades of his life and dozens of hours every week to learn is compressed into about an hour for you. That's a truly amazing system. But you have to work at active listening. You have to work at having that culture. For example, in the public reading of God's word, your mind should be on high alert. You should be processing every word. You should be prayerfully engaging with the text as it's read. That's why we have you follow along. And we read a short passage today, but Pastor Darren and I, we have a goal that on a given Sunday between the two of us, we will read to you two, three, or four entire chapters of the Bible, that equivalent. And you should be engaged with that. You should be engaged with the preached word. Listening to preaching is not a passive activity. It's hard work. And listen, as much as I'm grateful for our website and for the Steadfast in the Faith media site that has all of our sermons readily available, that convenience does have a downside. And the downside is that I want you here. And I want you listening. Because when you're listening online, I can't look you in the eye and I can't provide that accountability because I'm watching And yes, I see those yawns. And one of the funniest things to me is to watch somebody who has been held accountable and they break their jaw undoing that yawn immediately. That is God showing me where to look at the right moment. (laughs) Preaching is intense. It's meant to be. Imagine Paul and Troas preaching from dinner time until midnight in Acts 20. Quote, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and he fell out of the third-story window and died. Paul raised him from the dead, ate a snack, and kept on preaching until dawn. Those are listeners. <laughs> and poor old Eutychus goes down in history as the worst epic fail in sermon listening history. Don't be that guy. As fatherly shepherds, our charge to you is to tell you to learn to be a learner. To have your mind engaged and active and listening. And listen, for me, and I think any preacher will tell you this, I'm tired when I'm done preaching. There is a mental effort. It is as focused an effort as anything I've ever done in my life. And you should be mentally and spiritually and even emotionally feeling like you've exercised your mind. You you should walk away from here with a good tiredness that you've exercised. What is this called? Romans 12, 2, Paul calls it the renewal of your mind. And the result is that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One candidate for pastor was invited to preach in a prospective church and was told that after the service, a representative group from the church would meet with him and evaluate his preaching with him. So after the service, they gathered and one said, well, you went a little long. Another one said, I liked your illustrations. Another said, you, you talk too fast. I hear that one a lot. Another said, I like the Bible passage you picked and so forth. Some positive, mostly critical. And they said, well, thank you for being here. We're, we're going to think. And he said, hang on, can I ask a question? And he said, could somebody 
tell me what the point of my message was. And none of them could. They had formed a culture of elevating themselves above the preached word and they weren't active listeners anymore. I have seen believers who stop being active listeners and they can listen to some of the greatest world-class preaching on planet Earth available today and get nothing out of it. And I have seen active listeners listen to some of the worst preaching available on the planet Earth and say, you know, I really liked the way he read that verse. I got that out of it. I really liked his heart. It's really in your hands. Listen to the end. Don't check out. Don't think about what's happening next. Discipline yourself for godliness. Somebody told me recently, it seems that your sermons end abruptly. You want to know why? Because if you think I'm about to end, you check out. And so I'm just going to surprise you and say, okay, we're done. Ha, you paid attention to the very end. But you know the cues. You know this. Okay, well, we're almost done. No, the conclusion of the sermon is the main thing we're aiming for. Because the word of God, that's my last chance. There's that one little part of a nail that's still sticking up in your heart. And that's the last blow of the hammer. That might be the difference between obedience and sin in your life. Why is it so important to be a hearer? Because we are sheep and sheep wander if we're not constantly in tune with the voice of the great shepherd that comes through the word of God. In fact, I'll give you an example here. We'll return just for a moment to Paul's metaphor of himself as a mother. We would contrast the church at Thessalonica with the churches of Galatia. Totally different. Galatians 1, you don't have to turn there at all. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's saying they're reverting to a different gospel. They're saying now you have to keep the law to get saved and to stay saved. It's a works-based salvation. And because of this, many of them were beginning to revile Paul's message of the gospel. The very one who had given them spiritual birth in the first place, they were pointing a finger at him. And then Galatians 3 verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then in chapter 4, Paul gets so personal. They've turned against him. And he says, when I was sick, you treated me with kindness. You used to bless me. What happened? I told you the truth of the gospel. Now you treat me like an enemy. And he says he feels like he's giving birth to them all over again. Chapter 4, verse 19, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This shepherd was incredibly discouraged by the departure of his sheep from the truth of the gospel. They had stopped being hearers. And now they were in a spiritual mess of legalism and false gospel because they thought they knew better. God did not design the church to hear one great sermon and then coast through the rest of your life. You've got to hear the word over and over and over again. The hearers need the exhortation and the encouragement, but you're also to be doers. Doers. Here in our text in verse 12, Paul said he exhorted them and encouraged them and charged them. A charge, it means to insist. You you don't hear much insistent preaching these days. It's not seen as in. What's the relationship between these three fatherly actions? Exhortation, making appeal, 
making an appeal with the truth of Scripture, encouragement, advising, and comforting that the very best thing to do is to follow what you've been taught, to say you can do it. And the charge is you have the information, you've been encouraged, you've been exhorted, now you're responsible to do it. To do what? Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you that every single person, every one of you right now is responsible to make a decision to embrace growth and maturity. In fact, I want to have you turn with me just a few pages over to Titus chapter 2, right after 2 Timothy. As a spiritual father, Paul was in the role of exerting loving authority and training new believers how they ought to behave themselves. Now, as we've said before, Titus, written by Paul, is considered a pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, guidance for shepherds, but also for the whole church. But Titus, too, is unique because it contains a preaching guide. Titus 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach with accords with sound doctrine. Teach with accords with sound doctrine means teach sound doctrine and the behaviors that are the natural outworking of your belief. And so then in Titus 2, you literally have basically every understanding necessary to live a God-honoring Christian life. Beginning in verse 2, here's the preaching guide. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Depending on how you count, there are 34 exhortations to the church in that little passage. I know there's 34 because I have a pastor friend who spent 34 weeks preaching that passage. You know what he said happened to his church? He said we grew up because the church started doing the things that God commands. But how does Paul end this section to Titus? Does he say these are some nice suggestions to make? Chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's a loving father. Let no one disregard you. If you're a loving father and you have a little kid and you say, I want you to walk over here and the kid goes the other direction. If you're a loving father, what do you do? You walk and you get him by the scruff of the neck and you turn him around and you say, you have 1.2 seconds to get where I told you. I'm going to insist and I'm going to win this little battle. In fact, Paul gets even stronger in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 8. 
He says the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, excellent and profitable for people. Insist on these things. It means to speak confidently, to maintain continually, to repeat yourself over and over and over again, to be firm. Somebody told me once, Pastor, I feel like you repeat yourself a lot. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's a good compliment. Can I put it this way? There's a time for shepherds to be like a mother, and that is to put the love of God into you. There's a time for shepherds to be like a brother, to put the example of God into you. And there's a time for shepherds to be like a father, to put the fear of God into you. All three are necessary. Every message you hear, there are implications, there are applications that you take away to be doers of the word. Don't be a collector just of Bible knowledge. Don't be puffed up because you've listened to more sermons than anybody else. But leave every Sunday saying, what am I going to do? And then as you actively hear the word and proactively do the word, you're doing what Hebrews 13, 17 says to do. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. Go back with me one more time now to 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's going to give the reason he came to the church like a father who's exhorting and encouraging and charging What should be the result when the sheep listen to the exhortation and the encouragement and the command of the shepherds? 1 Thessalonians 2, the end of verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in the manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The result is you walk in the manner worthy of God and where you pointed. You're pointed toward the kingdom. What does it mean to walk in the manner worthy of God? It means to live your lives in a way that pleases the Lord. Now, left to our own power and ability, we can never do this, but we've been saved by the God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul now turns from what we should do for God to what God has done for us. Now there's a future orientation that we become, having become kingdom citizens, and as such we've been called to see and demonstrate the glory of God. Now we're already in the kingdom in the sense that our citizenship has been granted. We are citizens of heaven, but the spiritual kingdom that we enjoy now is not yet consummated in the physical kingdom that's yet to come. That's why we're to pray, your kingdom come. But listen to this. The summons of God, the call of God, to the future kingdom and glory. This is our ethical motivation. This is our, this is our motivation to an ever-renewed determination to holy living. And it's the duty of the church's shepherds to teach you this, to exhort you to this, to remind you of this week after week after week after week. Why? Listen very, very carefully. Anything less than wholesale devotion to God and seeking to obey the Lord is indicative of a possible false salvation experience. It's not that there are Christians who are hearers and then there are Christians who, hearers, who are hearers and doers. The one who is a hearer and a doer only is by Christ's definition the Christian. Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus himself said, My mother and my brothers, in other words, those in the family of God, 
My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and guess what he says then? And do it. Only they are believers. Well, if you allow me to, I'd like to apply this concept of the shepherd's heart to two groups and in several different ways to each group. First group, this is to our current shepherds and to all who would aspire someday to shepherd the flock of God. I have four thoughts for you. The first one is, Never forget that shepherding is serious business. Never forget that shepherding is serious business. This is not a game. This is not something we play with. James 3, 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that we give an account for each person that we've shepherded. This is one of the reasons we believe so adamantly in official church membership. I want to know who I'm responsible for. This is the reason that Acts 6 says that the primary duty of the shepherd is to study the word and be in prayer because this is serious business. This is a second thought to this group, to our current shepherds, to all who would aspire to shepherd the flock of God as well. Preaching and teaching must reflect the heart of a mother, a brother, and a father. Our preaching and teaching must reflect those three hearts. Sometimes you're gentle and affectionate like a mother Sometimes you're showing the way with the knowledge of the word like a brother. And sometimes you're insistent to charge the flock to obedience like a father. You know what the sign of a good father is? He's willing to stand alone. No matter what. Individual messages or lessons should have all of those elements. But lessons you teach or preach can heavily favor one or more depending on the topic. All three flavors of preaching are not only the duty but the calling of the shepherds. And for me personally, I, I kind of have a strategy. On Sunday morning, I generally strive to be fatherly. On Sunday evenings, I generally tr- strive to be brotherly. And when I preach to our ladies, to our women's ministry, I generally strive to be motherly. And that's kind of how I divide that up. Here's a third thought for our shepherds. Individual shepherding and leadership must reflect the heart of a mother, a brother, and a father. Not just preaching and teaching but your leadership and your shepherding. All of you as believers here, not just our official shepherds, but all of you are in a position as one believer to another to exhort and to encourage one another. And these three approaches are all useful. They're all necessary. They're all helpful. Sometimes you're gentle as a mother. Sometimes you come alongside like a brother and other times you're hard hitting like a father. One more thought for those who are shepherding. You must periodically check your heart for a genuine love that only a mother, brother, or father can have. You must periodically check your heart. A love like a mother that has a true affection and care and delight in the body of Christ. I I can't imagine what it would be like to preach to a bunch of people I don't really like. That would be odd. That doesn't make any sense. A love like a brother that lives among the body, but it's not above the body of Christ. I, I don't live on some special pastor's street with a gate code that nobody, that, except if you've gone to seminary, you get the gate code. No. I live in the same town with you. We do the same things. And a love like a father that gives sound instruction and is willing to tell the truth in directness and in insistence. I think one of the gravest dangers of shepherding is falling into a loveless management style that simply seeks to make decisions rather than guide and grow and lead the flock of God. And let me address a second group, basically everyone else. All you who are being shepherded to the membership, let me give you three ideas to 
think about. Pray for your human and weak shepherds. Pray for your human and weak shepherds. My poor wife has to endure people saying to her, it must be wonderful to be married to Steve. She's got a perfect smile for it. It's not always wonderful. It's not always wonderful to be an inadequate shepherd. And so pray that we would stay the course of shepherding. There are a thousand things every week that can get your shepherds off track. Distraction, personal sin, attack, unhelpful criticism. By the way, praying for your shepherds is not only a great benefit to us, but it's a benefit to your own souls as well. It keeps everything in proper perspective, keeps you from getting haughty. It reminds you that your shepherds need supernatural enablement. And we do, because the moment the mantle of shepherding is given to a man, he's laser targeted for pain and challenges. Don't be the source, be the support. Our new pastoral intern over Spanish ministries, Alex Barrientos. How long did it take? Four days for the first target to come. And we had a little talk about that. And I told him, you know, we put on a shirt with a big target on it. I'm not sure I like that shirt. It is there. We need your prayers. Here's a second thought. Determined to be godly followers. Determined to be godly followers. That's where the real joy of the church, isn't it? That's where we enjoy the one another. Shepherds doing their duty. Sheep striving to obey Christ through the proclaimed word of God. God has a plan for you as members of the church. Here's his plan. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And Satan has a plan for you as members of the church. Here's his plan. Galatians 5, 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Hebrews 13, 17 warns not to be the sheep that cause groaning and pain among the shepherds, but that cause joy because of obedience and love for Christ and faithfulness to the church. That is the greatest joy. It's the greatest joy together. Instead, you do what Paul said to the Philippians as a shepherd. He said in Philippians 2 verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And a third thought for the members, and this is for your sake, guard your own heart continually concerning shepherds. Guard your own heart continually concerning shepherds. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 gives three commands concerning shepherds. And it's interesting to me that they're all internal heart desires. There, there's, there's nothing about the external. It's all internal. Here are the three commands. Respect, esteem, and love. It's all internal. And frankly, this is for your own good because when you stop doing that, you know what else stops? Your own spiritual growth stops. Your own spiritual growth stops. Now, this doesn't mean you idolize your shepherd. You don't idolize a shepherd. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for you. It's not good for your shepherds. In fact, there's an axiom in pastoral ministry that's often repeated that the church member who at first idolizes you will then criticize you and finally ostracize you. Why? Because no shepherd can live up to an idolatrous perfectionism because we're all sinners. And so guard your heart with the careful balance given in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you give me one minute, I'd like to end on Christ. He is our ultimate example of a shepherd You know how Jesus shepherded? 
He shepherded like a mother. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He shepherded like a brother. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and he said in John 20, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, listen to this. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What is he saying? I am your brother. And Jesus shepherded like a father. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, listen to this authoritative declaration. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That's the end of his sermon. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. This is Christ's church. It belongs to him. It's purchased by the blood of the cross to provide gracious and free payment of sins for all who would receive Christ as Savior. May we be faithful to the great shepherd to be both the shepherds and the sheep that would be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now asking you to give us the the power and the grace and the help to obey you, to be the church that walks home together in obedience, that we're husbands who love our wives, wives who submit to their husbands, children who obey their parents in the Lord, employers who are kind and gracious and generous with their employees, employees who are submissive and great workers and a good witness. May we be those who extol the name of Christ on Sunday and proclaim the name of Christ Monday through Saturday. May we as a local body be privileged to receive a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who walks among the churches and who judges and who evaluates. We would pray that our evaluation, Lord, is one that you would conclude that we have shepherds who are faithful, sheep who are obedient, and a church that has made a difference for the gospel of Christ. That is our prayer this day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.